If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Donna Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Prime Minister's cabinet retreat has left the building. Are you up for an encore? Stomp your feet. Never mind. Here, Scott Thompson. What else you been? Oh, where else you been? There you go. Good afternoon, 308 Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson playing the Frank. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big Frank fan, but I do love this song. I think it's one of his best. Anyway, uh, Frank number 19. Hard to believe, eh? Number 19 on uh, Billboard, or sorry, not Billboard, uh, Rolling Stones Magazine's top 20, top 200 songs of all time. There you go. And uh, no Celine Dion, but Frank Sinatra coming in at uh, number 19. There you go. Now you know the rest of the story. Uh, what the big news of the day is, you know, everybody's talking about sending tanks to Ukraine. And then the problem was uh, the closest ones are German-made tanks are all over Europe. They, uh, they said no and, and eventually got pressure and said yes, and then uh, everybody else started doing it, including the U.S. Canada is sending uh, Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. How many? Four. Uh, but you know, it's the thought that counts, isn't it? And uh, at least we're uh, contributing. Uh, we'll find out more about that coming up a little later on. But I wanted to, uh, I thought about this last night, and, and I, you know, um, I'm kind of tr- figuring out how to deal with it, how to what angle to take on this or whatever, but it's in reflection of uh, the Prime Minister's visit to Hamilton and, um, you know, in, in, in what was discussed and, and what happened over the course of it. And, uh, you know, of course, we were joking. We, you know, we got the, well, CHML got the interview with Rick, but, you know, of course, I didn't. And we made a big joke about that, so on and so forth. And, um, but was talking to uh, Philomena Tassi, uh, MP, yesterday, late yesterday, and you know, I, I, I was listening to this clip that, that we were playing in regard to um, protests around Hamilton. Like, wherever the prime minister goes is protests. That's just the way it is, right? And um, so, uh, and then there was a comment from the prime minister on these protests. And I want to play, I'm going to get Will to play this for you. It's from yesterday on what... Um, and it really didn't get that, that much coverage, but on the protests that he was facing in Hamilton, here's what the Prime Minister had to say. People I've met, uh, the students here, the uh, folks and teams uh, that I met in various places uh, during our couple of days here uh, have been uh, thoughtful and open and warm. And a handful of angry people do not define uh, what Hamilton is or what democracy in this country is. Think about that. And, of course, everybody goes nuts because who would disagree with that, right? Um, it, it doesn't define Hamilton. Well, of course it doesn't define Hamilton. Why would you say that it even does? It does not define Hamilton, nor does it define democracy. Because we're not talking about Hamilton here. We're not talking about democracy. We're talking about you, you, Mr. Prime Minister, and you've fallen out of favor with Canadians. 
But instead of acknowledging that and acknowledging what the people are protesting, by the way, you know, saying that these protesters don't define Hamilton is like saying that the Freedom Convoy doesn't define Ottawaians, that don't, it doesn't define the people of Ottawa. Like, what the hell kind of statement is that? Especially when we're finding out that the guy that toppled the John A. McDonald statue was from Toronto. So these are professional protesters that follow the prime minister around. They're not Hamiltonians. Of course, they're, I'm sure there's a couple of fringe group Hamiltonians there. What the heck? Let's go protest the PM. But why would you even suggest they define Hamilton? Of course they don't. They're protesters. And I would suggest a good number of them not even from this city. But this is a deflection away from yourself and the deflection away for, from you to take responsibilities for your actions. People are angry because you're the most divisive prime minister we have had in my lifetime. You can debate that. Whether it's vaccine mandates that we should be celebrating, whether it's climate change, whether it's gender, this prime minister continues to divide and conquer to win an election. To the point where when people are criticizing him, he deflects it on the city he's in. It doesn't define you. He deflects it onto democracy. Doesn't define democracy. Small group of people. Which is why I posed the question to Philomena Tassi yesterday. Does the prime minister have any idea? How upset, how angry, how divided, how anxious, how stressed out Canadians are in this divisive Canada that he has helped create. Does he have any idea this small group of angry people who I guess are all just fragments of the Freedom Convoy? They're fringe groups much like the left-wing fringe group that beat up Lock Street a few years ago. But acknowledge them. We listen. We would ever. Don't point fingers at them like you did the 10% who wouldn't get vaccinated when the other 90% are. Celebrate the 90%. Don't pick a fight with the other 10. And that's what this is. We've got a prime minister who continually divides, and it's so subtle, it's so arrogant, you don't even notice it. These people don't define Hamilton. I know Hamiltonians. They're not like this group of deplorables. What the hell is that? It's got nothing to do with Hamilton. It's got nothing to do with democracy. It's you they are upset with, sir. It is you that they are angry with and the environment you've created. My suggestion to the Liberal Party, bring your party back to left of center and get yourself a new leader. And by the way, the advice isn't much different for the Conservatives because people have had enough of team politics and the divisiveness that these types of leaders are creating. The Prime Minister is a Walmart greeter. He's a great first face, makes everyone feel at home, tells you where you should go and what you should be doing, but has no idea how to run the store. Time and time and time again, that distraction is pushed onto us 
as Canadians. We should be doing better. We should think differently. We should be this. We should be that. No, no. The criticism is at you, Mr. Prime Minister. Not at Hamilton, not at democracy. Big boys should own up to that. You know, we keep hearing of these stories, and obviously it came to the forefront way back when uh, with the residential school uh, site in Kamloops, but this continues to happen, and an organization investigating unmarked graves near the site of Blue Quills Residential School in eastern Alberta has uncovered uh, physical and documented evidence of a genocide. The investigation's theory regarding the missing kids of the Saddle Lake site is that they are buried in undocumented uh, undocumented mass graves. The report includes allegations of a disciplinarian who worked there from 1935 to 42 seen killing children. Uh, the report also says the majority of these students died from tuberculosis contracted by drinking unpasteurized raws, uh, raw cow's milk from livestock that were kept on site. Uh, tuberculosis obviously very, very serious during this time. Uh, where are we in all of this and how close are we to Finishing, discovering more, uh, settling on all of this. Uh, Liam Midzane Gobin is with us, settler scholar, assistant professor of political science, Brock University, and with us now. Liam, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I'm doing well. I hope you are, too. Yeah, thanks so much. These stories, uh, they continue uh, to happen. We continue to hear of, of new discoveries. Uh, it is incredibly unsettling, and I'm sure to to Canadians, all Canadians, or they should be anyway. Where are we in all of this? Uh, we remember when this these stories first started to come to the forefront, and there's nothing new here, but for some reason we all decided, the rest of, of the settling population decided it was time to to pay attention, uh, pay attention after Kamloops. Where are we now in all of this? Are we making progress? So we are definitely making some progress. Um, the the where we are is a bit of a fraught question. Um, in terms of the actual kind of process itself, um, when we first saw the news out of uh, to Kamloops and and Kamloops, what we we got, and then that kind of leading to the the first wave of uh, of potential sites being found. That was a kind of first stage of radar. Now what we're starting to get um, both in Alberta, but I know a, a, a site, I, I think it was the St. Mary's School near Kenora. Um, there's one up in uh, Williams Lake in BC. Like this is the next round of ground penetrating radar that has been deployed over the course of the last uh, six to, to eight months or so. Um, so any... part of the reason we're seeing this, yeah, sorry. So no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say part of the reason we're seeing this come back at these kind of intervals is because it's a long engaged process of trying to find other potential bodies, searching out different sites. And so when we think of kind of where are we going, that's uh, this kind of process is going to keep going. But we're starting to see more engagement from the government, more money flowing um, and more kind of kind of follow up. And so um, the process continues. Any idea how long it's going to take to investigate the sites that we do know of? Or is this something where as you find one, you discover something else, you discover something else. It's just, it's ongoing. It is ongoing. Um, it's ongoing in part because there's been a lack of money to be able to do these kinds of things. But if I'm remembering correctly, um, we're, there are kind of three to five year plans in place to do a lot of the searching. And so at that point, we'll have the searches done, hopefully, 
Um, and it'll start to be a process of each nation deciding what they want to do with the remains, how to um, bring them up if they want, how to um, commemorate and memorialize them in place, kind of what ceremony and coordinating really between First Nations and, and other nations on how they want that to be done. And so I expect that that would take a little bit longer, but kind of that that first step process um, is is moving ahead. And I, I think we'll start to see with enough money flowing the next uh, next few years, we'll, we'll start to have a better sense of what the next steps end up looking like. So um, you talked about the you know discovering the remains, then what to do with them. Um, what are the challenges at this stage? Just trying to locate the sites, just trying to figure out how many there are. What are the challenges at this stage? And and with these discoveries, what are the challenges moving forward? So the challenges in terms of the sites, actually, we have a pretty good idea of where. Um, bodies and where children's remains may be, um, in part because the government and the churches did a really good job of keeping records of all of the different places that they were, uh, that they had occupied. And so at least we know where to look. Um, the uh, One of the challenges is, is kind of funding and the availability of the technology to be able to just go out to each of these sites. And so that um, is kind of a case-by-case -case basis type of issue. Um, one of the real troubles um, when we start thinking about relationships between these these nations and the government is how accountability is supposed to occur. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things we've seen is a kind of discussion of the residential school systems as an act of genocide. We're starting to see that when we get individual actions taking place um, and trying to really kind of look at what different systems did, but what different individuals did, like you just um, mentioned off the top. And so that question of accountability and how people and, and organizations are going to be held accountable is one that is going to be quite fraught as well. And I think that's the next kind of big hurdle uh, to, to figure out what that ends up looking like. You said something that that could have kind of stood out there for me. And, and because we hear how these kids are just discarded, really. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and what Quite they literally actually, right? yes, like that's and, what you're we talking about. It's yes. A little and, process. And, 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 and over and above what the families have gone through, um, and some we don't know about, some are unmarked, but you were saying in some cases or in a lot of cases, they kept some really good records of this stuff. What does that say? Yeah. Like you're, you're doing, you're, 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 like you're committing genocide, <laughs> but you're keeping really good records of it. What does this say? Uh, well, look, one of the, some of the comments, um, from some of the communities have been to talk about accountability in terms of the Nuremberg trials and the kind of ongoing pursuit of justice, both for what happened, um, during the Holocaust, but also what's happened like since in Europe, right? When we talk about the, um, Bosnian war and those kinds of, those kinds of issues and I mean, in those cases as well, there were really good records kept. And I think it it should make us reflect on how we prioritize lives and how banal that the government can treat that kind of death. Um, and what that I think says about what we need to be prioritizing going forward, but it's, it's horrific. Um, it's one of, uh, for those of your listeners who know, uh, Hannah Arendt's work, the, um, the yes, huh? looking at the, the Eichmann trials, right. It's the banality mm. of evil. 
Well, this is kind of what we are seeing again in a very kind of close to home example of that, that evil can be banal and it is terrifying in, in many ways and heartbreaking. Are we learning from this? I hope so. Um, one of the reason, one of the things that gives me hope is the strength that the nations are showing, um, both to be able to do this work themselves. Like they've taken on a lot of this work. Um, yeah. They're doing a lot of coordinating work amongst themselves. Um, and so there's that, but also because it's getting so much attention. Um, one of the really difficult things I think was the stigma and the shame and the, the heartbreak that people felt about the fact that they had been torn from families, that their parents had gone, that their parents weren't willing to talk about it um, because society refused to really listen. We're starting to listen. We're starting to have conversations. And I think that is hopeful. And to kind of realize that hope, we need to take that next step towards actually doing something about it. And we're, we're starting to see some steps towards that. Time to learn our real history. Uh, Liam Midzane Gobin yeah. with a settler scholar and assistant professor of political science, Brock University, talking about what is going on uh, in various parts of the country and uh, this latest, the Blue Quills Residential School near eastern Alberta. Liam, as always, thank you for the time and be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, uh, where we are with uh, our, uh, the economy and coming out or wherever we are with this global pandemic, uh, many thought we'd see roaring 20s. We are seeing incredibly low unemployment rates uh, historically and such help wanted signs everywhere, yet still looming chatter of a recession and now starting to see layoffs. Uh, Post Media laying off 11% of their editorial staff this week, economic contraction, uh, media industries facing tumultuous times, as is tech. Uh, let's talk more about all of this. Marvin Ryder, professor with the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, and is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. So what, again, we're in a weird situation here, Marvin, because we're seeing historically low uh, unemployment rates, yet there's supposedly we're going uh, coming up to an, a recession or possibly or such, yet we're starting to see layoffs now. What are the companies that are most vulnerable here, the industries? Yeah, so if you don't mind, can I break this into two chunks? Uh, the story you had with Post Media, I think, is a is a different problem than an economic problem. It's always been a dirty little secret that uh, we enjoy television or radio or or newspapers, but to to enjoy them, we need advertisers to support them. And today, advertisers are confronted with just so many choices; they don't have enough dollars to go around. So if they're going to promote their products on Instagram or on TikTok or on YouTube, something's got to give. And unfortunately, uh, traditional uh, newspapers have taken a big brunt of this. And as their advertising revenue disappears, they don't have the money to support the cost structure. So we are seeing layoffs in that industry. And, and the sad part of this, Scott, is let's say a story breaks of some kind. I can remember when the queen died and I wanted to get a couple of different versions of the story. I went to two or three different places, but I read the exact same story in each of them. So mm -hmm. what they're doing is they are sharing uh, stories. Uh, you only get one point of view. You don't get different points of view. That's different than the other question you asked, which is who's vulnerable. And the one sector that's vulnerable at the moment is the tech sector. So whether we're talking about Shopify or Amazon or, or Google uh, or even Facebook for that matter, uh, all of these companies thought that during COVID, 
we saw a movement of people away from store shopping, brick and mortar shopping, to the online world. At the height of it, it got up to 17% of retail transactions were happening online. Right now, it's gone the other way. We're down to around 10%. We might even fall into the 9% range. So all of these tech companies grew their workforces, assuming that what they were seeing was a permanent change in consumer mm. behavior, when instead it turned out to be a temporary change. And again, they've got too many employees for the volume of business that they're doing, so they're all right-sizing their employment. Two different examples of what's going on in this economy. Will this change those numbers, that those historically low unemployment numbers we're seeing? Right, and you would think it would when you hear about these layoffs in any sector, anytime there's job losses. But what we don't talk about is alone, along with 5% unemployment, that's not the lowest in Canadian history. The lowest is 4.9. So frankly, we're almost there, uh, mm. full employment. But what we also have at this moment are 950,000 jobs that are posted that are not being filled. So even though there are some people losing jobs in sector A, they don't have to just sit around and, and worry about things. There are lots of other jobs out there in other sectors. And that's part of the story of why we think if there is a recession in 2023, and we're not in one at this moment, but if we were to fall into a recession, it may not be all that terribly painful because at this moment anyway, there are lots of other jobs for people to take. All right. So obviously the shift after a global pandemic, that's going to affect uh, so many industries. As you mentioned, the media story is different. What is the new model for media? What is that going to look like? Or is this just going to continue to evolve and shrink? Where is this going? Although some companies reacted a little slow to it, the, the current view of this is to say no one can afford to be in a single medium today. In other words, yeah. a newspaper can't just be a newspaper. It's got to have an online platform. And so what you're finding is people are taking content and they are uh, finding different purposes for that content. So, you know, we're doing an interview right now, but conceivably, if you think this interview has value, I may wind up as part of a podcast or there may yeah. be a little clip of this posted to your website or somebody might summarize this in text and, and put it someplace else. And so they're getting very good at, at multipurposing. The only problem is many of these traditional media moved a little late. And so younger people, the students I teach at a university, earlier today, I asked how many out of a class of 45 students read a newspaper on a daily basis and not a single hand went up. I said, OK, well, you didn't read a physical newspaper. How about going to a newspaper website? Still not a single hand went up because they have forgotten to use that as a source. Those sources didn't move fast enough to keep themselves abreast of these technology developments. So that's the challenge. Different media are now having to play catch up to get to 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 match what they're doing in places again like social media uh, obviously we're hearing more and more about uh, the pending shaw and rogers deal obviously yep. more involved in the cell world and such but obviously both have media outlets does that affect that in any way yeah, well, again, at this point, it, it doesn't, other than to say that the cell phone business of Shaw is not being transferred to Rogers. That's going to go to a Quebec company called uh, Videotron. Uh, and what if, assuming Minister Champagne uh, approves this on Monday or Tuesday of next week, he's also going to say that Videotron has to offer those same low prices in new markets, i.e. Uh, Ontario and the West, which could be great news for many consumers uh, but again, it's just a sign that no one can afford to be in a single place. You can't just be 
global television. You have to be global radio. You have to have global web, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's the only way you're going to survive. And in the same way, you can't produce a story just for one platform. Whatever you produce has to go across multiple platforms. That's now the new reality. Yeah, a method of distribution, always changing. There you go. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. People I've met, uh, the students here, the uh, folks and teams uh, that I met in various places uh, during our couple of days here uh, have been uh, thoughtful and open and warm. And a handful of angry people do not define uh, what Hamilton is or what democracy in this country is. Oh, man, that makes me feel good. Except I think you just insulted me and the, and the people of Hamilton. Because saying that people who follow you around protesting represent or define the city that you're in is BS. That's like saying the people who occupied the streets of Ottawa in the convoy were representative Ottawaians. This isn't how people in Ottawa are. Did he ever say that? This has got nothing to do with Hamilton. It's got nothing to do with democracy. It's the prime minister's inability to understand that people have had enough of him. End of story. And again, the protest got very little coverage. We were taught we had Lisa out chasing them, but that was about it. And, 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 you know, this is a small group of angry people. Yeah, they are. They're fringe people. They're extreme right, extreme left, like the ones that beat up Lock Street. No different. But to say that they don't define Hamilton, well, of course they don't. Nor do they define democracy. It's got nothing to do with democracy or Hamilton or Hamiltonians. No more than the protest in Ottawa was, was about people in Ottawa. They were camped on your front yard, Mr. Prime Minister. So stop deflecting it onto the city, the citizens, or even democracy. People have had enough of this crap. Alyssa Freeman with us, our pop culture expert. How are you, Alyssa? Oh, I think I have to go now, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, how do you how do you say how do you say this does not define a city? Of course it doesn't define a city. That's a deflection, Alyssa. Once okay, again, so I, I can't accept people don't like me, so I, it must be you. Well, if it's not you, it's me, or it's not. If it's not you, it's, I don't know. What is it when you're breaking up with somebody? It's not me, it's you? Yeah, exactly. Anyways, um, anyways uh, here's the thing. Now we are already starting with campaign rhetoric, and you know that, and I know that. So the narrative is this. If you are angry and ill-behaved and you don't believe in democracy, you must be supporting someone who is angry like Pierre Polyev. However, I'm not supporting democracy. If, well, you know what? I think that what they're doing is that he's trying to create sort of like two demographics here. Those who are, uh, you know, freedom lovers or support the convoy and those who don't. And he knows that that is not a large percentage of the population, Scott. Like, I know there's a lot of people who don't like Trudeau, and there's a lot of people who are generally angry all the time. However, 
what he's doing is that he's splitting it into two camps. So yeah. if you're like this, then you're probably going to vote like that. And you're never going to vote for me anyways. But if you're more like me and you believe more in decorum and a sense of democracy, however you define democracy, i.e. as not attacking it, then therefore you're probably more likely going to vote liberal. So, you know, Scott, I was listening to you last hour and I'm listening to you, obviously, before you opened up the segment. And I really think that this is and we're going to talk about this in obviously in the years to lead up to this. But I really think that what we're hearing now is a bit of a trial balloon. And politicians do this all the time. They try these phrases, they try these narratives, and then at some point they go and poll people across Canada to see if it's landing. And I think that that is exactly what Justin Trudeau is doing right now. Can people not see through this? I mean, this is highly divisive. This is as divisive as Donald Trump, except on the left. This is divisive uh, uh, populist politics, Alyssa, what they accuse the right of constantly. I'm, you know, I'm sitting here, I sound like a right winger because I'm against this. I'm not, I'm in the center, but they've, they've, they've pushed, uh, they've divided and conquered or trying to divide and conquer the, the population. You know, it's interesting. Do you really think that politics is any different? I mean, it might sound a little bit different whether you're on the left, the right or the center. I think that you take the basic uh, 10 A's and you take the basic formula and you suit it to whatever your message is going to be. So when you talk about divisive politics, I think politics has always been divisive. It's either you or if you're not with us, then you're with them. It's always been. An I don't know. Scenario. I... Uh, yeah. I mean, like, think about when we used to vote back I mean, in the Paul, yeah, but... days. Were you for NAFTA or were you not? So if you wanted NAFTA, then you were voting Mulroney. And if you didn't, then you voted elsewhere. So I think that politics always has a bit of divisiveness to it, Scott. I think that the tenor and the tone can be amped up. And I think in this case, it is amplified more than just playing divisive politics. So I do agree with you on the amped up tone of this. Uh, and, and you know, like the the conservatives just as bad. I mean, Pierre Polyevre is doing nothing to win the beauty contest here. That's for sure. He's not Miss Congeniality. Um, but honestly, for the liberals, it's like they got both these parties. They got to get closer to the center, right of center, left of center, and they got to find new leaders. I mean, you know, if you go to the extreme right, guess what? You're going to get the extreme left. If you go to the extreme left, you're going to get the extreme right. People are tired of this. You know, I think they are. And I think that a lot of people think that, gee, I would really just vote liberal if it wasn't Justin Trudeau. But then you sort of like, look what's in the hopper, Scott. And is there anybody else behind him in the hopper that they could really put forward right now that they think people would vote for? I don't think that matters. I think it's it's going to be anybody but the incumbent. Um, but and I just said, you know, Anita Anan, I think, is the best one uh, in line for oh, the liberals. Christia Freeland, Christia Freeland and, and Trudeau. I mean, come on. But Anita Anan, there's a sharp whip. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, we had our statue of Sir John A. Macdonald toppled a while ago. Uh, the court has now decided to stay the charges that were laid against the person who uh, toppled it, who, oddly enough, is not a Hamiltonian, but he's from Toronto. I wonder if the prime minister is aware of that. Um, anyway. Um, the charges were stayed. Uh, people have been sending me notes. Does this mean it's now okay to topple a statue? 
You know what? I think that there are better ways to um, talk about your politics than to topple a statue and ostensibly run. I mean, this guy obviously didn't run fast enough. And I think that people like this, you know, that's how, that's why I have a problem with extreme activists, Scott, that, you know, they jump up and down and they scream. And as soon as they're done with that particular platform, they run away. Do they do yeah. the hard work? No. Are they part of the solution? No. Um, do they leave more questions uh, asked than answered? Yes. So do I I believe in such behavior in terms of, you know, trying to change policy or change the course the way people think? No, because you just can't cut and run and decide that your point has been said. Stick around, do the hard work, have the conversations, and instead talk about it and don't just don't start toppling statues. And I say add another one to it that explains the other side of the story. Wouldn't that educate all of us? Uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop. Yeah, PR and pop culture uh, expert, Alyssa Freeman. As always, Alyssa, love having you on. Take care. Be well. I love sparring with you, Scott. See you soon. All right, let's talk real estate. Uh, Hamilton politicians uh, voted uh, in favor of action designed to protect the city's housing supply, uh, approving uh, a new vacant homes tax to discourage speculators uh, from, uh, I guess, using buying homes and, and renting them out on places like Verbo or Airbnb and whatever, as a, and literally taking those houses out of uh, the housing mix. To talk more about all of this, Lou Piriano is with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton. Burlington and is with us now. Lou, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Yeah, we're great. Thank you. So what are your thoughts on this, uh, Lou? Uh, I guess if you're an outsider looking in, you would think, well, yeah, why isn't this a good idea? What what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, the word communism comes to mind. (laughs) Why is that, Lou? So we're, we're, you know, we don't have property rights ensconced in our constitution. We rely on politicians uh, who are making rules to be thoughtful and and not to chip away one by one at the rights of, of home ownership. And in this case, what they're basically doing is saying, we're going to charge you a 1% tax just for not using your property, just for having it sitting there, uh, 1% of assessed value. So a $900,000 house, which in Hamilton isn't huge, $27,000, sorry, $9,000 a year, uh, just because, plus your property taxes. Now in Vancouver, they've bumped that to over, I think, 3%. So in other words, if that, if they bring that to Hamilton, that'll be $27,000 a year to have your house sit there. How is this not an infringement? of people's rights to do what they want with their property. Can you imagine if uh, a couple of months back there was a used car shortage and can you imagine the city coming up and saying, well, you've got a car in the driveway you haven't been using. So either, you know, (laughs) get rid of it or we're going to tax it. What's the difference? Um, I also, you know, I read their their release that uh, profit, you know, the speculators are profiting. Profit is not a dirty word. You go to work and you get paid. That's your profit. And and so for people who are taking chances on, on purchasing real estate, which, by the way, you know, uh, it, as you know, in the last 12 months or so has been a uh, depreciating or a declining asset, not depreciating, but a declining asset temporarily until it makes its next comeback. So how, how is this not a uh, the state sort of taking control of your property uh and, and why don't they just make it a hundred thousand dollars a year if they want to force you to sell the property why leave it at one percent 
I can completely see what you're saying, Lou. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Uh, they use Vancouver as an example, who introduced this back in 2017. The city says uh, the tax has cut down 25% of vacant properties since it launched. Well, you know what? That's a sim- oversimplification of the facts. We have no idea why those people actually sold their property. Maybe it was for other reasons other than the, the vacant home tax. Uh, it could be just, you know, a normal turnover. And with all due respect, you know, I, I've, I've asked uh, for where do you get your numbers from to, uh, to politicians? Well, CMHC. Oh, you're going to rely strictly on CMHC. Well, guess what? Before the pandemic started in March of 20, CMHC predicted a 20% decline in house prices. In fact, it went up 20%. So there's a 40% margin of error. And notwithstanding that, even if their numbers are 100% correct, still, how do you take away the rights of a property owner to do what they wish with their property? Uh, I see your point. Um, uh, I'm playing devil's advocate again. What about the fact that this takes those properties out of the mix for the housing shortages that we have? Well, of course, this doesn't guarantee a single rental property will come on the market, either vacant home tax or Airbnb. They just may sell it to another single family. So if you want to solve the problem of rentals, build more rentals. That is the key. And then we get into this thing about, oh, well, there's profit involved. Yeah, that is the incentive to do the building. So, uh, and, and we've certainly seen that. We hear rental uh, increases are, are through the roof today as well. H- how do you get developers to, bend, to build rental units? Uh, I remember anecdotally uh, back in the 70s when they introduced rent control, uh, everybody thought it was great if you had an apartment, but if you didn't have one, it kind of it sucked because they stopped building apartments then. Uh, what do we need to do to get people interested in building apartments again? Well, for example, I was at this morning. I was at the Burlington City State address by Mayor Mead uh, Ward, and she said, you know, she was complaining about the hole in the budget because development charges are being waived for new building. What she didn't say was that that's only for uh, affordable housing and geared income type housing. It's not for everyday use. So yeah. they are providing incentives to build affordable housing, and she's complaining about it. Well, it's going it's to leave a hole in our city budget. Can't have you can't suck and blow at the same time. You got to pick one or the other. You want you want places being built, or don't you? And do you want them to be directed at the people who can least afford it, or not? That's another uh, sort of red herring in this issue regarding housing is that we need housing right the way across the board, no matter what your income level is, no matter what. Whenever politicians talk about housing, it's always about, um, you know, affordable housing or lower income housing. That is a small portion of the problem, isn't it? Absolutely. And the other thing that they conflate is they say, we're not, you know, the, the, the wetlands and the, and the protected areas and everything, you know, and the, the provinces are forcing us to open everything up. They are not. There's a big difference between protected lands and greenbelt and urban boundary, which is yeah. just a spot where the, the cities decided we're going to not build on this side of Rymel Road or that side of Rymel Road. It has nothing to do with protected lands. So, but, you know, the people who advocate for these types of things like to conflate those two things. They like to use nasty words like profit. 
and you know uh, things that will actually make people buy or sorry build a house so that people have a place to live and I, I got a chuckle when I I live in a pretty nice neighborhood in Dundas and you walk around and you see save the farmland well I, I want to save the farmland too because I like to eat but these people are sitting on big big lots and big houses yeah. and you know that's good for them they've already got their place but what about if you're a single mom living in the east end of the city I don't see any of them running around picketing you know, save the farmland and don't build me a house. Don't build me a place to stay. Lou Periano with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. Lou, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've uh, certainly, we're coming up to a year now, almost, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Many thought this would be over in a few days, and and look at where they are. Uh, obviously, Laura, a, a lot of uh, support from allies and such. The latest uh, being tanks. Uh, initially, a series of German tanks throughout Europe. Uh, Germany, the builder of the tanks, didn't want to let them go, um, simply because of, of triggering even more escalation of some sort. They have given uh, permission for countries to ship these tanks and use them in uh, this conflict. The U.S. and Canada also uh jumping on board uh why now and they've been asking for these for a while why is this happening now and is air support far behind dr jack cunningham with his phd program coordinator at the bill graham center for contemporary international history trinity college and the monk school university of toronto with us now is dr jack cunningham jack thank you for the time i hope you're well i am scott good to be with you so, Jack, we, uh, you know, Russia's, are, sorry, Ukraine's obviously been asking for this sort of stuff for a while. I mean, we've been supplying lots of other things. Why has the whole tank issue, why is this an issue now? Well, it was, it's been an issue largely because the, uh, the tanks are of German manufacture and the German government has been, uh, has been reluctant. It's needed some prodding. And in particular, it didn't want to be in the firing line alone from uh, from Russia, with in term in terms of criticism for uh, for escalation, so it uh, I think it was important that uh, President Biden authorized the sale of of uh, thirty one uh, U.S. Abrams tanks to Ukraine as well, so that uh, Germany is not going to be uh, exposed alone on this. I think that broke the logjam. So, how much of a difference will these tanks make? Is this a game changer? Uh, potentially, as Minister Anan said in her announcement, these uh, these tanks are are considerable in terms of their firepower, their survivability, their mobility, and they can certainly be crucial in terms of uh, future Ukrainian efforts to regain lost territory, particularly in the eastern Donbass. They uh, they have the potential to be a game changer, and that is why the uh, the Russians have responded as uh, as ferociously as they have. So why not just, uh, what's next after the tanks? More tanks, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, obviously uh, air coordination, they would love that from NATO. That's not going to happen. That would draw everybody into the war we hear. Why not just send everything you can and get this over with? Well, we are incrementally sending what uh, what we can. In the Canadian case, unfortunately, we're not able to send a lot. We have about 80 of these tanks that are combat-ready, but unfortunately, uh, uh, maintenance has been a real problem. And these are, uh, these. Uh, one of these tanks is a complicated piece of machinery, keeping it in good order and repaired and uh, and maintaining a steady flow of spare parts. 
is a tricky thing, and it's not something we've been particularly good at here. So out of uh, out of those 80 or so that are combat ready, we're only uh, anting up four, which is uh, which is not a lot. And even the even the Germans are doing 14. The British are doing 14. The Americans are doing 31 Abrams tanks, and uh, and we're doing a rather measly four. So uh, are the Allies uh, actually trying to help Ukraine win this or just hold their own until Russia backs off, gives up? You know, it's funny you should ask that. I was uh, I was recently in a, one of my seminar courses and we were talking about the Vietnam War. And the decision-making process there was sort of geared to the point where everybody was, was intent that uh, imminent defeat be staved off. And that was all we were able to do, stave off imminent defeat. The question arises, is that what we're doing now, or are we really uh, arming Ukraine to prevail? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not privy to what is uh, what goes on in uh, in the rooms where those decisions are taken. But I would like to see us do uh, do a little more. How? How is Russia reacting to this latest uh, round of equipment that you know will show up over the next few weeks, months? What's their well, reaction? Well, Russia is claiming that this is uh, an escalation, and that uh, as uh, as I think Mr. Minister Lavrov put it, uh, red lines have been crossed. Uh, I think I, th- I think the fact that the Russians would react so angrily suggests this does have the capacity to upset their calculations considerably. Um, so at one time we were sending other forms of support rather than these tanks. Now that we are sending these tanks, is it a matter of time before air support arrives? I think it is. I mean, everybody's, everybody's aware of what, uh, what air support would entail. Uh, I do think we we're likely to see more tanks. We're likely to see more, uh, uh, air defenses, uh, soon, uh, and we're likely to see more hardware, more trainers. In your mind, what would end this? Uh, what would end this would be the uh, the liberation of the uh, the territory that uh, that Russia has taken, uh, ideally including uh, including Crimea. But uh, it may it may be that what would really end this would be a change of mind on the part of Mr. Putin, or his being replaced by somebody of a more uh, of a, of a more flexible disposition. Is Russia capable of winning this, do you think? Well, it's uh, it's 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 uh, it's not uh, acquitted itself terribly well so far and uh the 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 sanctions that we've imposed on Russia are beginning to bite particularly in terms of high-tech military equipment. Uh the uh, there is an undercurrent of uh of, uh, of popular discontent over the mobilization of uh, of Russian na- Russian nationals for uh, for this war, uh, I think it is conceivable that it is politically impossible for uh, for Putin to do what is necessary to prevail. Uh, you talked about uh, things could change if he is replaced. What do you think the chances are uh, of that? What is Putin's security stability where in, in in his current role? I think the chances are slim, but uh, every now and then the unexpected happens. I mean, after all, it would only take a relatively few uh, few people to uh, 
to topple him. The uh, remember the twentieth of July plot to uh, to assassinate Hitler, which came pretty close to succeeding, it was a fairly small operation with a fairly small number of people. It would not uh, it would it would not take many more to uh, to remove Putin if they're if they're uh, sufficiently well placed. Should we be or should allies be offering him an off ramp of some sort, a way out? Well, or is the is, or, or is the way out? He's, uh, he's rejected all the all measures that would seem to uh, allow for compromise on uh, on acceptable terms. The problem is, there's not really much of a middle of ground. Uh, he wants the territory he's taken. Ukraine wants it back. It's pretty tough to uh, to split that difference. Is that territory of that much value to him and the citizens of Russia, especially now? Well, it is to him because of the, uh, the the conception that he has in his mind of Russia's world role, Russia's imperial destiny, the uh, the conviction he has, and I think he's quite sincere that uh, that Ukraine that Ukraine is not a real country. Uh, I think it is that important to him. He and and he certainly stakes so much of his own credibility on it now that it's hard to see him uh, uh, gracefully retreating. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and Monk School, University of Toronto, talking about tanks on the way uh, from allies to help Ukraine. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Larry is with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton and my favorite liberal. uh, liberal. He is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you. I was going to talk on how your party really needs to find a new leader, but let's put that to the back burner for a bit uh, because the, <laughs> the decision just came out. And you know what? The conservatives do as well. So I'm not going to I'm going to I'm going to leave it at that. Um, so I want to get your take on a former mayor and such, obviously, and and principal teacher, uh, the toppling of the statue, the Johnny McDonald statue, uh, Gore Park way back when we remember that uh, because of uh, he being the orchestrator of, of residential schools and such. Uh, we found out that the person who toppled that stat- statue had their charges stayed with the judge saying it will not resolve the issue. I'm um, not sure that toppling the statue will either. Um, what are your thoughts on all of this? Because I have a hard time with this. I think they should put up another statue uh, to, to tell the other side of the story right, na- right next to John A. McDonald. I think that's the way we get to, we get ahead and get both sides of this issue uh, out into the open. But it seems that we're attacking the leaders of the past um, and not taking our own responsibility for that. In other words, if we attack John A. McDonald, we forget that all of our ancestors probably voted for him and really didn't have a problem with any of this way back when and went along with it. And to be totally honest, Canadians couldn't have give a rat's ass about this issue until very, 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 very recently. So uh, how do we, you know, condemn our former leaders, but as citizens sit back and say, but my uncle, great uncle and great aunt and great, 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 great aunts and uncles, they had no... Uh, they had no involvement in this whatsoever. Is this a fair? Is this a fair analysis, Larry? Well, gosh, there's so much there to to, to unravel. Uh, quite frankly, Scott. First of all, in terms of staying the charge, I read the article this morning and I did not understand it. Uh, maybe the article wasn't well written. Maybe it didn't provide all the details. 
uh, but simply saying, um, you know, charging this fellow who broke the law um, will not resolve the issue seems to me uh, that that just provides more questions than answers uh, to, uh, to to the whole purpose um, of, of why it was done and why the person was charged in the first place. Um, so um, that, that just befuddles me. I'm not a lawyer, and uh, maybe I just didn't get the right information in, in that article. But I think um, it leaves uh, something to be desired to, to simply say, you know, those charges are being stayed as if nothing happened when, in fact, something did happen. A statue was knocked down. There was city property uh, and uh, created a, uh, um, a spectacle. And people had perhaps in their mind a reason to do it, but that's no way to try to improve things. And by the way, uh, since that statue was knocked down, are people any happier uh, right now who... Um, who knocked it down uh, to get at whatever mm. issue needs to be fixed. Have those issues been fixed? I would say no. All it did is polarize people, quite frankly. Those who felt that it should have been done are happy, and the majority, who probably the majority, who felt that it shouldn't be done are puzzled why those who broke the law are not being pursued in a legal way. Um, and we, uh, on, on your note too, Larry, we talked to Jeff, uh, Jeff Manishin today, and he's, we're trying to get him on this tomorrow, but he said we don't really know why it was stayed. It could have been for some other reason that we have no idea of, which we also have to acknowledge. Well, exactly, and that's exactly, and, and uh, Jeff is an expert lawyer, of course, and would know, uh, but that's, the, that's how I was left this morning after reading the article. I thought, what? What is this all about? Why do they explain uh, what you mean by this? Uh, and, and because, by the way, if if there is no explanation to try to make some sense out of what the legal system did, then people are going to write the script, and that mm. script will not be a favorable one as to why the charges were stayed. Uh, and uh, and I think we as, as citizens of this city are owed an explanation as to why they did what they did in, in terms of staying the charge, and we might even agree with it. If, if there's an explanation, but to simply wave it off and say, this will not solve anything and um, trust us, um, just leave something to be desired. Uh, as I mentioned, nobody's denying the impact here. We all know that this is just a horrific scenario. The deeper you look into it, and we all need to listen and, and learn about this. But are we displacing our anger off of ourselves by attacking other people or a statue well, when as when as canadians when as canadians we're all guilty of this right but there are so many examples of of how we seem to be living in a world right now where outrage is the order of the day hmm. i mean you know you started this by saying that the uh, liberal leader and maybe the conservative leader need to be replaced uh and maybe that's true and 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 there are processes that will allow that to happen in in a fair and systematic way. But outrage gets us nothing. And we saw an example of that with this, with this crowd, with this mob that pursued the prime minister, who's a human being after all, agree or disagree with his policies, vote for him or don't vote for him. He went to have dinner last night and the invective that was being thrown at him the swear words, the signage, the outrage is just out of proportion. Uh, and it didn't make our city look good. 
And those who are funding that, and I believe that there are political parties, opposition parties that are funding that outrage, are using people as tools. They're using people as tools, rather, uh, for for um, a political ends. And that doesn't that does not help our society. And it's the same kind of mob mentality that knocks down statues, that that swears, that carries vulgar signs, uh, that doesn't allow for civil discourse, that doesn't allow for even people that we may disagree with, like Jordan Peterson, to go and speak in a university. And I disagree with a man, but I think he has a right to speak. And we need to be tolerant of other people's opinions and exercise our our suffrage exercise, our right to vote people out as well as people in without the shenanigans that we've been seeing lately. Is the Prime Minister responsible for any of that divisiveness, Larry? No, absolutely not. The <laughs> Prime Minister, the, the Prime Minister, let, let, let me tell you, he's a human being, he's made mistakes, and I do not agree with everything he said. You started by saying, you know, I'm your favorite liberal, and yes, I vote liberal. The last election I donated to all three parties. All three parties I donated to people that I liked in each of the three parties. So I'm, I'm not so partisan that I'm blind to people's foibles. And the prime minister has made errors like all politicians do, but he has had people's interests at heart. Uh, and, and, and so consequently, whether you agree with him or not, he has carried out policies that he believes are right for this country. And to be treated in such a vitriolic way does not do justice to the political, to the to the democratic political system that we live in, which is based on law, law, order, and 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 the right to choose our leaders without them feeling that uh, you know that the, the, there's a, a a lynch mob waiting to lynch them at every turn, and and you know the, don't give me this that the prime minister is is divisive when he calls people who are insurrectionists insurrectionists and 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 uh, you know if, if this all goes back to the to the mandates and and uh, covid and uh, and the fact that he imposed I don't know Larry I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you here Larry cuz we're almost out of time but uh, but honestly right. in my lifetime I've never I've never experienced a prime minister that is so divisive whether it's on climate change whether it's on vaccine whether it's no, on anything but, but Scott with all due respect uh, and I know we're out of time uh, you think he's divisive because you don't agree with the policies. No, Vote that's not it at all. That's Vote not it out. at all. We got 90% of a population vaccinated, and he picks on the other 10% that aren't. I mean, come on. It, he, it's just not right. I got to let you go. wanted to overthrow him because they disagreed with him. Oh, and my they, goodness. It's it's one in a room of 10, Larry. I got to run. We're plumb out of time. We'll continue this. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News. Today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we certainly know the ongoing debates and whatever posturing around the Canadian healthcare system. We remember back as far as the first wave, uh, Premier Horgan from uh, British Columbia, NDP Premier out there, former Premier, 
has since retired, uh, leading the charge with the with the uh, fellow premiers trying to get a meeting with the uh, with the feds, with the prime minister and the provinces. The template's not working; it's broken. We need to fix it. Uh, and and we promised after the pandemic we'd do this, and then the politics started. Uh, provinces still anxious, hankering for that meeting. The prime minister kind of keeps kept blowing them off. Said, uh, "I want to see reforms and." Um, I want conditions made. Um, uh, Premier Ford, the first to say, yep, no problem. Got that done. And then started down a trek of reforming. And since then, many provinces have followed suit from British Columbia right the way through to Nova Scotia. Um, so that's where we are now. And finally, uh, the Prime Minister has uh, agreed this week to have a meeting with the premiers on February 7th. Uh, it was interesting that a spokesperson for the BC premier said, well, we're going to come February 13th and 12th either way, and you're invited. And then, boom, we have this meeting all of a sudden scheduled the week earlier. What has changed? Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with the McDonald laurie Institute. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, sir. Your thoughts on where we are in this final uh, meeting coming up in February? Well, it feels like a really, really, really slow moving train. I mean, we've been talking about this for two years now. I'm thrilled to hear that a date has actually been set. However, if you listen to what uh, our prime minister is saying, uh, I believe he said, quote, we're not signing any deals, end quote. He also talked about uh, bilateral agreements with each province. It'll be fascinating to see how that works. And so you kind of wonder where the money's going to go. Is it going to go to a province that or provinces that uh, don't uh, think a whole lot of him or not it's hard to know and then finally you know if he's making side deals the typical thing that happens for example cody said fiscal position is strong in many provinces what happens in the hospital sector is the low performers end up getting a bunch more money and so we have a combination of politics and perverse incentives and so that's coming more to the fore but other than that it's a lot of the same that we've heard before uh, you know, you brought up an interesting point, and you know, many have said, "Well, the provinces are floating in money. Why don't they fix it?" Is if the provinces, and and uh, you know, I don't this know this a hundred percent, but I'm sure you have some sort of inkling, as if the provinces have enough money left over in their savings to fix healthcare. Like that, that's like that, that's not even an option, is it? Yeah, I know it's it's bizarre. So so the uh, the feds tie the province's hands behind their back and then they say, well, we'll pay 22 percent on your total bill, which is like paying the tip. Right. But yet we get to determine the menu and we get to say what's coming and what's going. And now they actually have the I'm, I'm calling it arrogance to say, yeah, we'll, we'll dribble a little more money. We might increase it to 35 percent. But you know what? You better darn well do what we tell you. And you better stick to these five conditions, which actually sound like 15 or 20 conditions. And and it just it's it really feels bizarre to me. But having said that, I'm glad that they're meeting and maybe they'll work this out. It seems like the provinces are moving ahead of the prime minister on this, that now the prime minister is playing catch up. The provinces have been organized and put together for a while now. Uh, and as soon as he said reforms and conditions, they said, OK, here we go. And and now the prime minister is playing catch up, trying to defend what he has done. I mean, the NDP upset because they think some of the reforms are going too far. 
Well, exactly. The premiers have always been 100% unanimous. And I, I kind of chuckled when we saw this last spring, I think, and then again in the summer and again in November at the November meeting. We're 100% unanimous that we need more money. We're 100% unanimous on the 35% figure. Uh, but you didn't hear them talking about unanimity on strings attached, right? Conditions on performance and that sort of thing. And that's been the source of debate, money and control. And so there's you know, some premiers would love more central control. Other premiers would say, hey, no, we know how to run healthcare." So that's coming out now. And even the right of center premiers are saying, you know what, whatever, we'll give you your strings. Just give us the money because we're starving. Why do you think things have changed on this? Because honestly, uh, nobody at the federal level was interested in this or housing or any of this until until it hit the fan, per se. Why do you think this meeting is happening now after so many months of, of nope, there's no meeting? I wish there was a non-cynical spin to this, and I apologize if I'm sounding too cynical, but I can't help but thinking that everybody's, you know, the voters are saying, listen, we need help. You need to get change. And so our senior level federal politicians are saying, okay, the politics seems to be, you know, the the voters seem to be showing interest in this direction. And so then we're going to step in and be the champions and show how we're forward thinking and we have solutions and follow me, rah, rah. But again, like I've said before, I don't believe the federal government has the capacity to implement meaningful change. Furthermore, they don't understand healthcare like the provinces do, and the provinces are the experts on this. So it's a bizarre situation where we've allowed the feds to call the shots without actually taking responsibility for funding it properly. And at the end of the day, Sean, is this really about controlling the money, or is it really about controlling whether we get a win or not? Uh, no matter what happened, it just I got to make it look like our team's got the win here. Yeah. So again, me and you, you're appealing to my my skeptical or cynical spin on this. I I, I fear that that's the case. Having said that. Uh, voters, us, the public, we need to say, listen, you guys have promised us a product. You've promised us services. We need these services. We're not getting them now. Please get together, make a decision and start delivering the care that our patients need. Have the public spoken on this and completely changed the paradigm where they've said, you know what? Guess what? We don't care. We just want to get to the hospital when we need a surgery or some sort of procedure. Is that the consensus here? Because when all this happened and Ford announced what he announced, I thought, wow, why did this take so long? Yeah. So back in April 2022, Institute of Research on Public Policy did a study uh, looking at, you know, they interviewed Canadians and saying, uh, do you do you want strings attached or not? Do you care about these conditions on outcomes or do you just want the money to flow? And by a large majority, they all said, just get the transfers flowing for crying out loud, sort this out. Now, having said that, if you also ask the voters, will you ha- will you agree to increase taxes to pay for those transfers? It's almost mm-hmm. unanimous saying, no, no, yeah. no more increased taxes. So, but there you go. I think the public's on side with just, come on guys, get going. Uh, don't worry about these nitpicking over strings attached, but it depends, you know, our, our current prime minister tends to like to control things. And so I'd be surprised if we don't see a huge element of that coming out of these negotiations. Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with the McDonald-Laurie Institute. Sean, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I want to read you a note from Mr. Lowe, a retired history teacher who often writes into the show. Listen to this. This is pretty cool and a bit long for last words, so I'm going to read it to you. Um, As a retired history teacher, number one, statues of past political leaders must not be destroyed or vandalized that are now seen as making terrible mistakes during their time in office. Instead, Education, in big capital letters, of their past is key to understanding their mistakes. History cannot be erased, so to do so makes it very possible that the the same mistakes are made again. Number two, all the comments, flags, that make derogatory comments on present political leaders, along with protests, are a clear sign from those living in our society that have been largely ignored by all political leaders over the past 50 years. Add the pandemic inflation and a feeling of despair that this group feels and you get this mob mentality there you go something to think about on that note let's bring in scott radley host of the scott radley show you can read him in your hamilton spectator coming up after the six o'clock news he is with us now ladies and gentlemen captain highliner almost almost more like captain morgan but um (laughs) all right let's not go there yeah Uh, or maybe or maybe let's go there are you a rum guy no actually no No. not not even a little bit um yeah me neither no but uh no i like i I like mr lowe's um topic there and i'll tell you why because every single current politician who is on board with ripping down statues or whatever else is missing a key point here, which is 50 years from now or maybe only 20 years from now, everything that they have done will probably be seen as wrong and offensive to somebody in some way because times change and sensibilities change and opinions change. And I mean, look, you could you could make a very good argument that our current prime minister's father who has an airport named after him and a statue yep. after him, who was the man yep. who was in power when the white paper was authored, should have all of his stuff removed from public life. Yep. You will. What if we find out in 30 years that legalization of marijuana turned out to be a horrible mistake? I know some people are going to say, oh, reefer madness. No, no. What if we find out that something about the legalization of that, or assisted suicide or whatever, what if we find yep. out that in time those were horrendous mistakes that we couldn't foresee and at the time they made sense to us, but down the road we look back and we go, what idiots? Well, does that mean that Everything then that our current prime minister does has to be eradicated from history. It's just it becomes this problematic scenario that I understand where the concern and the upset is. But when times are always changing, the current politicians have to be aware their time is going to come too. And how can you, as you know, a citizen in 2023, um, condemn past leaders but not the citizenry who voted for them, who obviously thought this was okay, who agreed with this. And let's be honest about Canadians. Nobody even really gave a rat's ass about this until recently. So it seems like we're shifting our guilt onto the leaders. They did it. They're the, well, you, you didn't say anything then. So how do we tear down the leader, but not on, you know, go on ancestry.ca and put an X through all of our grand, great, 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 great,
we use the Pierre Trudeau example with the white paper, and look, that's a that's a uh, something we could debate. But if that's the case, our parents, many of them, voted for him, so yep. they yep. technically could be. It's as recent as that. Uh, some people yep. listening may have voted for him. I'm not. I'm not casting blame on everybody for that. I'm simply saying we know that times change, and we know that in time things that happen now will be seen differently. And maybe when you're throwing darts at all those people in the past, be prepared for when you're gone, that'll happen to you. And the judge said that um, charging this person, they stayed the charges, a man from Toronto that toppled this, uh, the charges were stayed because if you go through with this, uh, it's you know it's not going to change the issue. Well, neither will well, according the to the statute. Yeah, according to the Go story ahead. in the spec as well, uh, the crown, the, the lawyer who represented this guy says the crown noted that the accused or the formerly accused had quote been expressing a political view. Well, uh, Scott, let, let's that seems to me to be the most problematic statement of the whole thing. That that to me is a that is a enormous mistake. If your reason for dropping charges is because someone was expressing a a, a firmly held and honest political view. Anybody could be holding a political view who does anything. Why? why if, yeah. if that's the case, how can you possibly then say that someone who is protesting an abortion clinic, who is holding a firmly held moral political view can then be charged with that? How can go through the list of anything, anyone who holds, what about that? Was there not a woman or a man who was charged um, during the two federal elections ago up at Mohawk College when what's his name from the People's Party came and his path was blocked? Oh, right. Was that yep, not yep, a political yep. view that was being held? Like this is a this is to me is a Pandora's box of a statement. If it's true, saying that you hold a political view, therefore you shouldn't be charged. That's a that's a disastrous statement. And again, we get, we should refer, and we're going to find more out on this tomorrow. That we don't know exactly why it was stayed, so that could change everything. This is but only by what the lawyer says. Yes. So at this point, it looks like if you decide to topple a statue, your lawyer can use in your case when you're charged. Well, you let this guy off. You stay that one. Why does it matter with Billy pushed over another one? Yeah. What happens if the statue? Of, never, what yeah. happens if the statue of Joseph Brandt gets knocked down? Will that be a firmly held, honest political view? I doubt it. Scott Radley coming up after the Scott Radley or after the news. <laughs> and you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Frank wrote in to say, you might have an opportunity for an interview with Justin tomorrow, Scott. He might be snowed in like the rest of David wrote in to say, Hello, Scott. The small number of misogynistic, racist, divisive, anti-Canadians who came out to support Justin Trudeau and his liberals do not define Canada. They are the vocal minority. The vast majority stay silent and respectful and are buying their time till the next election when they will be heard loud and clear. 